I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects. Hello, this is Chad Chancellor with Next Move Group. Before we begin today's podcast, if you've been enjoying our podcast series, Please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That'll sure help us out. We'd appreciate it a whole lot. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Next Move Group, We Are Jobs podcast. I'm your host, CEO Chuck Sexton, and I have... One of my most favorite guests I could possibly probably have today, and that is Master Distiller of Four Roses Bourbon, Brent Elliott. Brent, thank you for being on the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Chuck. Good to be here. I've been telling folks we're going to do, you know, we're going to switch things up from time to time. We had our college preview, college football preview a couple of weeks ago with Chad. We had a panel of economic developers from, gosh, I think we had folks from Kansas, uh, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, all over the place. And um, that's always a fun episode. And folks have been asking me about bourbon. It seems like everywhere I go, we're meeting with clients. Uh, it doesn't matter what state we're in. I get asked about bourbon. And uh, matter of fact, I was in North Dakota not too long ago, got, got asked about bourbon because they know I'm from Kentucky and they know I love it. And so I thought it would behoove the audience to bring on a real expert of bourbon uh, in a form of a master distiller. So I really, really appreciate you being on. And I would be remiss if I did not pour myself a uh, glass of four roses since I am sitting here talking to you. So I just poured a nice hefty pour of uh, single barrel uh, just now. That's my go-to, by the way. I think you know that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now, that's why you say that because, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that say the same thing, you know, just by virtue of being from Kentucky People assume that they're bourbon experts. And, you know, fortunately, most people I talk to, you know, they know their bourbon, you know, just from being, you know, around it, you know, being here in Kentucky, a lot of it just kind of rubs off, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Well, I grew up with some distillers in my family. We can talk about that later, but I want to, I want folks to learn about you. I want to learn about Four Roses. So one of the things I think would be cool to start with is to kind of give an overview or, you know, have, have it be long. We can give a brief history of Four Roses, kind of where it started and, and where it's come. Okay. It's, um, you know, we're a very old brand, uh, but it's a unique story because, you know, we go way back to you know, some say the 1860s. Uh, but we know for a fact that the brand existed in 1888 because that's when it was trademarked. And it was trademarked in Louisville, Kentucky. 
It's where our founder, Paul Jones, was selling whiskey at that time. Uh, but he started the brand prior to that down in Atlanta, Georgia. But he moved up to Whiskey Row in the early 1880s. And he continued selling bourbon and his whiskey up to and actually through Prohibition. Actually, he passed away in, I think, 1895. But his nephew took over control of the company. And when Prohibition hit, he was um, fortunate enough to ha hold one of five or six um, licenses to sell whiskey for medicinal purposes. So, you know, prior to Prohibition, there were hundreds of distilleries, you know, thousands of labels, and many of those were just lost to history. Uh, but we were fortunate um, because you could still get Four Roses, you know, as medicine during Prohibition. And to this day, I use it as medicine. <laughs> yeah, I I like to think, you know, back then you probably didn't have the wide array of medicines that you have today. You probably had, you know, just a handful of different medicines and your whiskey was arguably a viable medication. And, you know, so for whatever ailed you, you could go see your physician and you could get one pint of 100 proof whiskey every 10 days. And we still have some uh, actual medicinal bottles unopened here at the distillery that actually have the prescription on the front, you know, looks like a modern prescription, all the same information. That is so, so It's very interesting, <laughs> but it was really fortunate for us because, you know, all these other brands were lost, but we were sort of there, you know, in the public's consciousness all through prohibition and after prohibition, uh, we became one of the best selling bourbons in the U S and then in 1943, um, Seagram's, the big Canadian company that was, you know, they were just exploding after Prohibition. Um, I think they did pretty well during Prohibition too, but, you know, once uh, Prohibition I've was revealed, those <laughs> yeah, they, they were, they were killing it. They were acquiring brands, uh, facilities, and part of that acquisition was um, buying the Four Roses brand from the Jones family. And so they bought the brand, and then a few years after that, they bought the distillery that is currently, you know, the home to Four Roses here in Lawrenceburg, the Four Roses Distillery. And, you know, they continued selling whiskey um, up till um, it was the late 50s. They decided to focus more on the, uh, the Japanese and the European markets. So they took Four Roses, the bourbon, and started exporting all the bourbon. And at the same time, they the, the name had a lot of equity here in the U.S. So they um, swapped out the bourbon in the U.S. for a blended whiskey, you know, Canadian-style blended whiskey, kind of like Crown Royal or Seagram 7. Yeah. So you could still get Four Roses here, but it was not bourbon. And that was true all the way up to kind of the modern era that sort of began in 2002 when Seagram sold us and Kieran, the Japanese beer company, um, you all know about, they, they bought us. And fortunately at that time, they brought Four Roses back to the U.S. as a bourbon. So in a lot of ways, we kind of started from scratch here in the U.S. market. Um, in some ways, we kind of started out in a hole because our reputation had really declined into the quality, the perception of you know what used to be a highly regarded whiskey here in the U.S., was not that great. You know, it, would, it had really kind of hit rock bottom. So we kind of had to dig out of that hole and, um, you know, prove to everyone that, you know, Four Roses is now a bourbon in the U.S. and it's, it's fantastic. So well, that's, that's kind of, though, that you kind of had to crawl back in because 
to someone who loves a, a bourbon, a blended whiskey does not cut it. No. So it's interesting it to me, and it's kind of wild thinking about it now, uh, that the bourbon bourbon was being shipped out and the blended whiskey was the focus here. So, and I, I know you're getting ready to tell me, but um, kind of how did the transition then shift into where, where we are now with Four Roses? Well, it was really good timing on the part of, you know, the company and my my career, actually, because I started in 2005. But, you know, they made that decision to come back to the U.S. in 2002. So this was, you know, right before this huge bourbon boom or bourbon renaissance that we've experienced, you know, like none before. So um, we were in a unique position because, you know, we had a lot of um, whiskey, a lot of barrels aging the warehouses. We have, you know, our facility here in Lawrenceburg. We we have all the warehouses in uh, south side of Bardstown and Cox's Creek, Kentucky, um, because we were still selling a whole lot of bourbon over in Japan and Europe. Mm-hmm. So we sort of had the infrastructure to really take advantage of what was just around the corner, which was the, the bourbon boom. So, um, you know, 2005, when I started, we were still only selling in Kentucky. So when we came back, we didn't just start selling all over the country. So it started slowly. We started in Kentucky, then 2006, 2007, we started adding a few states, Indiana, New York. And then, you know, within three or four years, we were in all 50 states and we were growing, you know, super rapidly, but we were kind of growing on a relatively small volume. So, you know, 70% growth year over year with small volume. While, you know, it was amazing. We were all excited about it. We also understood that we were not talking about hundreds of thousands of cases. You know, just talking about, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 cases, you know, still, you know, significant volume, but it wasn't huge. You know, we're kind of, in a sense, filling the pipeline. And we're also experiencing, you know, getting our, you know, the people that maybe hadn't considered four rows before to try it. So it was a lot of, you know, that trial, that filling the pipeline. So we really didn't know what to make of the growth at that point. Uh, But this was about the same time that, uh, you know, everyone started to pay attention to Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. So this growth continued. We just kept you know, putting up, you know, just astronomical growth year after year. And then sometime in, you know, between 2011, 2013, we realized that we were starting to look at, you know, the growth was still relatively large, you know, year over year percentage growth, but we we're starting to see you know, substantial volumes. And so it presented a problem, a lot of opportunity, but, you know, at the same time, you know, bourbon's kind of unique because you have to make it today uh, to sell five, six, seven years down the road. So we realized at that point that we had to do something. So we put the ball in motion to expand here in Lawrenceburg and at Cox's Creek in about 2013, 2014. And we started that big project in 2015. And the first part of the project was to build a new bottling facility at Cox's Creek. Mm. Um or that was the one that was completed first. That was completed in 2017. The distillery expansion began in 2015, 2016, and we didn't finish that until 19. And essentially what we did is we doubled our capacity here. So everything that we had one of before, we now have two of. It's a complete doubling under the same roof, you know, in the same facility. And that was really just in response to this unprecedented growth here in the U.S. Yeah. So and you all just recently had another announcement of uh, additional what, what was it? 23 million investment. Um, well, we've invested, let's see, we've done a, 
might be thinking about the visitor center. We just opened up a new visitor yeah. center at the end of last year. It's beautiful too. I just, I finally got to go see it on father's day. It is. It's incredible. Um, but that it was probably, probably what the press release wrote might've included that plus the warehouses we've got. Um, we built two over the last two years. We're going to complete three more this year. I believe three more next year, two more the following year. And really just, you know, we expanded you know, our distillation capacity. So we need somewhere to put all these extra barrels. So yeah, everywhere you look, we're expanding. And, you know, it's true of the whole industry. Everyone is just reacting to this bourbon boom, both from a production standpoint and, you know, the bourbon tourism, that's something else that is kind of, you know, goes hand in hand with this revival and the interest in bourbon whiskey. We've got hundreds of thousands of people coming on the bourbon trail every year from all over the country and all over the world. So, you know, everyone's putting money back into, into their facilities just to create that experience for everyone. Yeah, you're, you're right. You know, one of the things that um, is happening with me, you know, I don't, I have people who will text me or call me and say, Hey, uh, what do you think of this bottle uh, or this bourbon that I found? And is it a good deal? Or, you know, give me a list. What's your top five. If I were to start a bourbon collection, where do I need to begin? If, if I want to get into bourbon, where do I need to start? I get all these questions all the time. The other one I get a lot is, Hey, coming to Kentucky in three months or whatever it is. And we want to go and see some distilleries. Can you give us suggestions on which ones to go to? And, you know, obviously there's a lot of great ones out there to go to. Um, you all are always on the list. And, you know, for a couple of reasons, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a little fan favorite of, of Four Roses, but at the same time, um, you know, the distillery is unique, I think, it, with it, the Spanish absolutely. mission style. There's not another one that looks the way that Four Roses does. No. Yeah. For anyone that hasn't been out here, I always bring that up. I'm like, you've got to come see us because we're so out of place. It's so <laughs> incredible. <laughs> it's uh, You're driving down a little two-lane road and then all of a sudden there's this Spanish mission style distillery. Bam. It's right there. Yeah. You, you think you're in like Southern California or something. It, it's wicked. It, it's yeah. the, the visitor center, the way that you all designed the new one, I think just, just goes perfectly with it. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. We, we try to stick with that, that theme. It's uh, like every new building we put up is in that same Spanish mission style, you know, with the same yellow paint. And it's absolutely beautiful. Well, and the cool thing is, if you oh, go ahead. on the tour, the, they talk about the original design of the, of, of the distillery. They get into that quite a bit. The tour guides do. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating just because it is so unique. So I'll, I want to ask you this too, and, and I think it, it would be great coming from you, be, you know, as a master distiller, folks always ask me, okay, now tell me again, what makes a bourbon a bourbon? Because nobody outside of the state of Kentucky, even people inside the state have a problem remembering it. Uh, but definitely folks outside the state do. So if you can, you know, talk about what makes bourbon a bourbon rather than just a whiskey. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, I believe it's most highly regulated of, all the whiskeys, you know, for like the guidelines you have to follow to call it a straight bourbon whiskey. Let me see if I can get all these off the top of my head here. Uh, first was it has to be made with at least 51% corn. It has to be aged in new charred oak barrels. It has to be distilled at less than 160 proof. It has to be put in the barrel at less than 125 proof. Um, you can't add any flavor or color whatsoever. Um, which I think is one of the most important of the guidelines that, because that basically means it's 
handcrafted. You know, we, we're kind of at the uh, mercy of the weather, the wood, you know, fermentation profile. There are so many variables that go into it. Um, so that's one, uh, it has to be aged at least two years, but most bourbons are aged at least four because if it's between two and four years, you have to put that statement on the label somewhere. If it's four years or older, you're not required to put an age statement. Um, and then another one that I believe is the last one. I may have, I don't think I missed one. The last one is it has to be produced in the United States. Yeah, that's right. So some people think it has to be produced in Kentucky, but that's not true. Um, no, no. But I mean, 90, most of it 95% does come. comes from Kentucky. Yeah, 95%. But, but, it, but it's interesting. If you look at, there are now over 2,000 distilleries in the country. Wow. And so if you look at the sheer number of distilleries, Kentucky is actually number 12. So still 95% of it comes from here because all the big distilleries are here. The majority of the big distilleries are here, but the volume they're, they're <laughs> popping up everywhere. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. Uh, I am going to, I want to talk about that later a little bit too. Uh, I want to get your advice for some of the communities who are listening. I want to talk about the business side of bourbon and you know, what a community has to do to attract a distillery. But I, I want to keep kind of on this track that we're on right now and maybe have you talk about what makes Four Roses unique in the in the bourbon realm. Okay. Um, you know, I think I have, I talk about this all the time and I have sort of like different responses to the level of, I guess, the audience or their, their level of knowledge. You know, just on a basic level, I'd like to say, you know, all of our products, there's a lot of variety. Um, they're very approachable, you know, very mellow, smooth. Um, but to dig a little deeper into that, I like to explain that. Um, and I probably won't go into this too much, but we, we produce 10 different recipes and it's, we have two different mash bills or grain recipes that we use and five different yeast strains that we use to ferment the mash. And each one of those yeast strains creates different flavors, like fruity, spicy, herbal, floral, and so that combination of the two uh, mash bills, five yeast strains, that's how we arrive at 10 different, distinctly different bourbons. And they're all straight bourbon whiskey, but they all have a different flavor profile. And we age them all, or we, we mash them, we distill them, we age them all independently. So any barrel in the warehouse is one of those 10 recipes. And we use those different recipes to create um, variations in our products. Um, so for example, our Four Roses Bourbon is all 10 recipes small batches for the recipes, small batch select is six. So each one of those will have a different flavor profile just based on sort of this palette of flavors that we have to work with here at the distillery. So, and that's really something that's unique and something that we're proud of. And it really adds another layer of sort of handcraftedness to the product because we're always sampling and selecting the right barrels, the right batches, the right flavors to you know create new flavor profiles or to create consistency within the pro the products that we have already. So now, again, it, that's a little in, in the weeds there, but you know, that's, it's really unique. Yeah. And I, that's one thing I really love about it. So, you know, if you're looking at, I guess, a single barrel, depending on the single barrel bottle you pick up, you might have a different flavor profile. Is that right? Uh, well, yes and no. So our standard single barrel, which is the 100 proof that you can find pretty much anywhere that's always uh, the same recipe. Okay. But, but we also have um, 
a private barrel program where retailers or charities can come in and and select um, from all 10 recipes. So, and that program's just taken off. It's where it's that's kind right. of like, that's where I've seen it. When when you go into a liquor store and you see store pick exactly their barrel, and you can look at that grain profile of OBSV or whatever grain profile you're looking for. And so if you find one that you really, really like that flavor profile, then you can seek that flavor profile out consistently. Or you can have yeah. two different ones. If you're looking for a little spicier rather than a smooth or, or a sweeter profile. or it, Exactly. And, and it's created a lot of excitement. Like, you know, all the bourbon connoisseurs will collect these and, you know, have tastings get together and share bottles of different recipes and hunt down certain runs of a particular recipe. So it really has, you know, given you know, the people that are really looking to really glimpse behind the curtain of, you know, the variation that we or, you know, any producer can can create. It's really given them, you know, something to really explore those different flavor profiles and all that variety that, that we produce. You know, I, it's, folks have asked me um, about when they ask me about bourbons, one that I have been, of course, I always talk about single barrel from Four Roses, but the small batch select which if I'm not mistaken is your newest product um, as far as your standard products that you can get it in stores regularly. Um, yes. That one, I have told a lot of people that I think folks sleep on. I don't think enough folks have tried it yet. Um, <clears throat> I really enjoy it. I think it's a great bourbon and, and I've, a lot of people don't know about it. It seems like. Yeah, it's relatively new. We launched that in 2019 and, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my go-to now. Um, you know, maybe it's because it's it's newer, and maybe it's because I I sort of developed that flavor profile, so I kind of developed it to my taste because I didn't really have a standard to go for. Um, so of course, I guess that would be my favorite. Well, I didn't yeah, know that. A, I didn't know you did that, and it's it's become uh, my favorite too. <laughs> yeah, I I absolutely love it. It's uh, it's a little bit higher in proof. Um, you know, it's 104 proof. It's non-chill filtered. And I said, it's, it's six recipes. So it has a unique profile. It doesn't taste like any of the other products. You got to explain to the folks out there what non-chill filtered means. Okay. Um, so that's sort of in reaction to, you know, the bourbon connoisseurs who are more educated now than ever. Um, basically for most bourbons, especially bourbons under hundred proof, um, when we dump it out of the barrel and we add water to it, um, there are a lot of compounds from the grains and the wood that are sort of like oily compounds for, you know, lack of a better term. They're, they're sort of big, heavy compounds that are really soluble at high proof. So they'll stay in solution in the barrel, you know, at barrel strength or even at 104 proof, they'll stay in solution. But you start adding more and more water and you start changing it to more of an aqueous environment. Some of those compounds will bond with each other and precipitate out. And so at first it'll start to appear cloudy and then it'll actually like, you'll get flocculation. You'll get little particles of these compounds coming together. And for people that, you know, don't, aren't educated on that and they see that sitting on a shelf, they're going to think that there's something in their bourbon that's not supposed to be there. So <laughs> as an industry, years ago, we started forcing that reaction before bottling. We would cut it to bottling proof or just above bottling proof, flash chill it, force that precipitation, and then run it through filters to pull out those heavier compounds. Um, you know, the modern bourbon consumer, 
you know, they, a lot of them say, you know, don't, don't mess with my whiskey. I don't want you to take anything out of it. And so that's how the whole non-chill filtering um, phenomenon's kind of become popular. It's where we just don't do that. We dump it from the barrel. We, you know, either bottle it at barrel strength or add water, but don't add so much that we force those compounds to come out of solution. And then we just put it in the bottle. And, you know, that's really been something that's popular. And that was, you know, that was intentional. You know, all those private selections that we we're just talking about, those different recipes of single barrel, they're, um, they're always barrel strengths. Those are non-chill filtered. Our limited editions every year, those are non-chill filtered. But those are not the easiest products to find because they're, you know, we don't have an infinite volume of that and the demand is just through the roof. So, so we wanted to put something out there that was non-chill filtered that people could find, you know, on a shelf anywhere. And that was yeah. part of the idea behind a small batch select. Well, I think it's really cool. I think it's a very good bourbon. I mean, it tastes great. Um, of course I drink mine neat. I don't really like uh, anything. And I used to, I used to be on the rocks person, but I, uh, I changed that up um, after um, I was out of, I was out of my bourbon balls one night because uh, I have the special things to make those. And, uh, I was out of them and I thought, well, I really want a bourbon. So I just drank one neat and I thought, eh, you know what, this is, this is how I want it from now on. I don't want yeah. anything between me and my bourbon. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want to thank LocationOne.com. Some of you know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. In my opinion, Lois is the best buildings and sites database on the market. One of the reasons I think that is it gives you nationwide exposure. So I used to be the economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, and I made a terrible mistake. I only put my buildings and sites on the Kentucky Economic Development Buildings and Sites database. Well, Paducah bordered Illinois and was within 30 or so miles of Missouri, Indiana, and Tennessee. So what sense did it make for me to not put my buildings and sites on a nationwide database? Well, Lois does that for you. Looking back, I should have put my buildings and sites on Lois. It's also easy to use for an economic developer. It's just like using Facebook. It walks you through how to insert your pictures and your information and so forth. And the thing I like most, it works well on my iPad. If I'm in an industrial building, I want to be able to look at that thing on my iPad. Lois does that for me. Other buildings and sites databases struggle with that. So if you got 10 or 15 minutes to spare, go over to location1.com, book yourself a demo, and see if this can help your community have more success. You know, one of the things, before we get into some, some of the business stuff on, on the bourbon industry, I, I do want to ask, how, how does someone become a master distiller? Uh, that's a great question. There are many different roads to get uh, into this position. Um, I know a lot of the master distillers, at least from, you know, the larger distilleries that, that I, I know personally, I know a lot of them have had, you know, they have science backgrounds my backgrounds in chemistry um you know a science background engineering background and i think the one thing that all master sellers have in common is just the passion for it and the experience and you know in my case i think i was kind of at the right distillery at the right time because you know i, I got in here right before the boom um we had just come back to the u.s so we were kind of a skeleton crew here. We did not have a lot of people in management. Um, again, because we'd just come back to the U.S. You know, we didn't have a sales department, a marketing department, um, 
I was really the second person in the quality department. So there's a lot of opportunity for me to learn all aspects of the business, you know, from, you know, the grains that come through the front door and you know, maintain the quality of those to, you know, the quality of the corks that we put into the bottles. You know, there was just a lot of opportunity for me to learn. And so I just kind of grew with the company. And then in 2015, uh, you know, I'd only been here 10 years, which, you know, for it's, you know, relatively short period of time for, um, you know, a lot of master distillers, but um, Jim Rutledge, who'd been here or with Seagram's then Four Roses for 49 years, he retired. And so they just kind of tapped me and they said, Hey, you're going to be the next master distiller. I said, Thank you. I'm, I'll <laughs> happily be that. Gold. So. <laughs> I'll take it. So how, how much bourbon on a daily basis do you have to taste test? <laughs> I had another good question. Um, this is always kind of disappointing when I let people know that the majority, the vast majority of what I have to evaluate in a given day is by smell because um, I'm looking at so many samples, but I certainly have to taste a lot too. Um, but the majority of it is just smell. And, you know, it's it's different every day. Like um, today I tasted one sample. I smelled and tasted where it was um, trying to narrow down a test blend for small batch. That's something else we did. We're always reevaluating barrels and doing test blends because barrels, we run out of certain batches or the batches um, you know, they increase in age because it's a moving target. They're always aging and changing. So we're always refreshing um, the formulas or the barrels that are to go into each subsequent dump of small batch, small batch select or whatever it might be. And uh, so today it was one sample. Um, some days it could be 150. It's And I'd say more often than not, it's going to be, you know, 50 plus samples in a given day. But some days it's none. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. Uh, I would have to, if I was master stiller, I'd have to say, look, I'm going to do minimum of 15 to 20 per day, just just to make sure that my palate stays ready. <laughs> so it's, it's not a bad idea. You got to got to stay sharp. Yeah, I uh, I did get my disappointing email this morning on the limited edition. Uh, I was not selected to purchase a bottle uh gosh every year it seems like they just see my name and say this guy won't quit trying to buy our bourbon we're not giving him any of it not anymore <laughs> i'm sorry about that i yeah that's uh that's tough you know for everyone out there that might not be aware you know we do this limited edition every year and we do you know 14,000 15,000 bottles in the u.s and it sounds like a lot but it's there not more based on how much bourbon you sell and how many people that get, try to get it. Uh, it's not a lot. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's a coveted thing to have. And, um, you know, my buddy Chevy that I brought to the distillery once, uh, we both put in for it and I had texted him right before, uh, we jumped on, on to record the podcast and he, he did not get, uh, selected either. So we're both uh -oh. in our heads today, uh, over that, but that's okay. There's always opportunities in the future. Yeah, we'll, we do a lottery for it every year, and uh, and it's still in the marketplace. That's just, you know, we just get a few hundred bottles here at the distillery that we release. And, you know, for years, it would just be, you know, first come, first serve, which, you know, I can see the benefit of that, too. But it would be, we'd have, you know, way more people show up than we had bottles. 
Yeah. And people would come from all over, you know, Michigan, New York, just all over. And uh, they'd camp out and, you know, have a good old time, but not everybody got a bottle. So, you know, there's no perfect way to. And that's not a good experience for the customer. It's like, I I camped out for two days. I didn't get a bottle. So (laughs) I think it's, I think the lottery system is a good way to do it. Yeah, there's no perfect way, but yeah. Um, you know, what What people might not realize, you know, we, we hit on this earlier, and I want to kind of get into the business of bourbon and distilleries. And, you know, you talked about how many there are across the U.S., and which is an astounding number, really. Um, and there's always um, what I would call sort of a, um, you know, kind of like a microbrewery, micro distilleries that are popping up here and there. People are just passionate about it, have their own recipes. They want to get out there. They don't want to do a whole lot of it, but they enjoy it. And you know, in Kentucky alone, the bourbon industry is a $9 billion a year industry, which is just insane. And um, 22,000 jobs in the industry, um, $1.3 billion in annual payroll. I mean, it's it's a huge deal. Um, and I know there are communities out there, especially those who want to create a um, better sense of uh, quality of place, quality of life. Uh, they want to have things like this. So, you know, if you were to recommend, you know, steps for any anywhere, not just Kentucky, anywhere in the U.S. that's looking to, you know, we want to attract a distillery in our community because our roots are in X, Y, or Z, and we just want it here. What do you think is sort of the right recipe for a community to have uh, to attract and and to be able to support a distillery? That's a great question. Um, I think some of the very successful um, smaller distillers that I've seen. Um, one that just pops to mind are some of the distilleries, or not one, but some of the ones that are very successful are the ones that are like in high tourist areas, like like around the Smoky Mountains, Gatlinburg, that area. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great model because you know they've got a lot of tourists coming in and, you know, down there they probably, you know, 15 years ago, you know, for a souvenir, they'd buy a corn cob pipe or something. But, you know, what better than to be able to buy, you know, moonshine from from Tennessee when you're you know, there in the Smoky Mountains. Um, but as far as, you know, as far as a community, and I th- think, you know, community support is important, obviously. Um I think like my advice to the actual distillers would be, you know, now's a great time. It's the best time ever to really start from scratch. Um, I know 15 years ago, uh, you know, people would come to pick our brains and, you know, the industry is unique in that, and there's competition, but there's more camaraderie than like, than competition. Like everyone's willing to help each other out. And we used to have people come in all the time. They're like, you know, I'm trying to start a distillery in California. And where do I start? What do I do? And um, I don't really see that anymore. I, I rarely get um, someone who just asks for advice because there are so many resources now out there. You know, there are classes you can take. Um, universities are actually offering courses. You've got you know, resources here in Kentucky where you can go and, you know, actually take a class will teach you all aspects of not just you know distilling and how to you know make a whiskey or a vodka or a gin but you know teach you all aspects of the business and so my advice would be 
do something like that. Learn what it takes to actually you know, get into the business. And, you know, there's the, the fun side, which fortunately is, you know, more of the stuff that I get to deal with, which is, you know, just the actual making it, but, you know, permits and licensing and, um, and, uh, water, how much water, water, water a day. Do you, uh, do you know how much water you guys use a day at the distillery? Oh, uh, you may not offhand. I, no, I, 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 I could have told you six years ago, I, I can't remember what that volume was, but it's actually reduced now since, since our expansion, um, before most of the water that we were using was actually being pulled from the river and it was being used as cooling water. So it would come in, you know, there were a lot of areas where we have to heat up and cool down vessels. And it was, so a lot of the water would just come in, was non-contact water would be used, it would go through um, coils to cool different vessels and it would just be discharged back into the river. Um, but, um, well, we'd take it out, let it cool back down again in a holding pond, then it would be discharged back. Um, but since the expansion, we've built a, uh, basically our own closed water chilled um, water loop. So we we still have to refill it and discharge it occasionally. But for the most part, you know, we, we fill it up with water and that water just recirculates. So our water usage is down a lot. Um, but still, like every every bit of water that goes to the boiler, you know, comes out of the Salt River. All of the water that we use in our mash, um, that comes from the Salt River. But I couldn't tell you offhand what the what the daily volume is now. Right. But to really be a true bourbon, um, you know, it seems like a lot of the distilleries utilize uh their own sourced water. They don't really utilize uh, city water or you, you you know municipal water all that much i mean that's sort of part of the part of the deal i would assume yeah see, most people will you know they're pulling from a, a river or a, a lake in most cases rivers you know bringing it in treating it themselves and part of it is you know you always hear kentucky is really good for making whiskey because of the limestone and you know that's something you get when you get that raw water out of out of the river you get um a lot of the minerals that are great for making whiskey and uh and great for like filtering out impurities and you know metals that are detrimental to fermentation so the water is perfect and um so yeah that's that's something you have to look out for the the water on the front end um when you're planting a distillery and then the part that's in the procurement of you know the glass the barrels so much goes into that well, in the but grain, the I mean, you know, you kind of have to be, I would assume, in a, in a location where you can get access to the grains that you need fairly quickly, easily, not a lot of trucking expense on that. Yeah, that's a huge part. And then, you know, grain storage, so you have sort of a buffer capacity to maintain continuous production. And then on the back end, probably the biggest part that is really not any fun is dealing with the spent mash. It was every one of those fermenters. So one of our fermenters is, you know, just under 15,000 gallons and it's at about 8% alcohol. And once we run one of those fermenters to the still, that's condensed down to 140 proof alcohol. So it's 70% alcohol and the, the rest is just water and some of those flavoring components that you get from fermentation. Um, but all that spent grain, a lot of that water, a lot of the, all of that, we have to do something with that. 
And so we generate a lot more. So what comes off the still is just, you know, a small percentage of what is the byproduct. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately for us, we have um, local farmers that will come and pick it up. We, we do two things with it. We either send it off just as raw slop where the, the farmers just come with their big containers and they, they take it off and it's just, you know, feed for their livestock. Um, but since our expansion, we've also started creating distillers dried grain. So we actually run it through a process that is probably as, it's not as complex as distilling and mashing and fermentation and all that, but it's still a pretty complex process where we're actually like pulling the water out, pulling out the, the syrup and then reapplying the syrup to the grain. We're, we're creating a, an actually a sellable product. It's a more condensed, you know, more nutrient rich grain that we can actually sell for, for livestock feed. So is it cereal? Could you make cereal too though? <laughs> I don't know. I know that is, that, I'm sure people have looked into that because that is one of the challenges that the industry faces is what to do with that spent mash. Yeah. With that grain. I mean, yeah. I could imagine a few years from now, uh, a commercial, I will start every day with four roses, single barrel breakfast cereal. <laughs> you might be onto something there. I think it would sell well. <laughs> and we'll be right back. In today's executive search spotlight, Forest City, Arkansas's Industrial Development Commission is searching for an economic development director. Pay is going to be between eighty dollars and $110,000, so very good paying for this area. For those of you all not familiar with Forest City, it is located about 45 minutes from Memphis. there in the northeast corner of Arkansas, and the economic development director will be responsible for all economic development activities for Forest City as well as St. Francis County. Big labor shed of about one and a half million people. So I urge you to go look at this job profile on our website. There is a large, large industrial building sitting empty, several properties, some of them with rail access, uh, that close to Memphis, a lot of opportunities to win. Please go check this out for more information on our website, thenextmovegroup.com backslash Forest City. So, you know, we talked about the grains a lot. One thing we haven't talked about is what grains are used, specific grains. So uh-huh. what, are the, what are the grouping of grains that you have to have? Uh, the only thing you have to have is to make bourbon is corn. That has to be the majority grain. Um, I would say most distilleries use um, corn, rye, and malted barley. Uh, the next most popular secondary grain is wheat. So some distilleries or some distilleries have both mash bills they'll use rye in one mash bill or wheat in the other one or sometimes they'll have four grains they'll use corn rye wheat and malted barley and the malted barley most everyone uses malted barley or some kind of malted grain and that's more of a functional grain when i say malted it's actually been um it's gone through the process of malting which is where you kind of trick the grain into thinking it's sprouting. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're um, you're creating that part of that grain's life cycle there, where there are a lot of active enzymes in that grain. And so when that malted grain, in our case, barley, is added with the ground corn and the ground rye, 
those enzymes will break down all the starch, which are the primary components of these other grains. It'll break down that starch into sugars, which is what's needed for the yeast to go in and consume and create the flavors and the alcohol. So it's a little more complex than like if you're making uh, wine, you don't, there's no need for conversion. You know, grapes have the sugars that are fermentable in them, or if you're using just like raw sugar or molasses or something, you don't have to go through that conversion step. And that's most, you know, all whiskeys, anytime you're fermenting a grain, you have to, whether it's beer, whiskey, you know, Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, bourbon whiskey, there has to be some enzyme, enzymatic activity to break down those grains so that they can actually be fermented. Yeah. I prefer my bourbon to be gluten-free, so I don't get any that have wheat in them. <laughs> so, all right. So I want to recap here, you know, what communities need to have just through our discussions, you know, if you want to support uh, and attract, you know, this type of industry, you need good, clean water, good, good water sources, um, preferably limestone water, because that doesn't just, help with um, the purity of the water and, and less that you have to do as a distiller to, to cleanse it, but it's also part of the story. It's part of the marketing for the brand. And then uh, from a grain standpoint, you know, you want to be in, in some sort of uh, grain basket where you have corn and rye and barley, uh, maybe some wheat, you know, you don't, you know, don't have a lot of people with celiac uh, to worry about. Um, and then obviously you want to be able to have reuse uh, for the spent grains, the mash, uh, that's going out. You want to have a good uh, co-op of, of agriculture uh, that would like to utilize those. Um, and then, uh, you know, good policies, you know, you talked about permitting. I mean, there's, there's all, obviously uh, issues, you know, we talk about permitting a lot when we're working with communities and, and how they can uh, fast track those things. But uh, I feel like I hit it all there uh, with communities who might be interested in attracting this type of industry. Yeah. Okay. And, and I must, even though we don't produce a uh, wheat whiskey, um, I must say that, or wheat-based bourbon, um, the distillation process will remove gluten, so you're you're safe with perfect with bourbon with made with wheat. And there's actually uh, there's some gluten in rye too. So, but we can we can safely state now we're allowed to say that you know the distilling process will denature or remove all the protein and you know including gluten from the from the age or distilled spirit you know, and that's a great thing i joke about it but you know i have a lot of I have family members uh, my wife um i have good friends whose uh they and their family members have all have gluten intolerances and so yeah i'm, my I'm wife glad that i can i can post on facebook hey if you can't find anything else to drink drink bourbon <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you can't um, reach for a beer <laughs> yeah don't drink beer drink bourbon so where do you think, where do you think the, the industry's headed in the next few years? There's been this big boom that we've seen. Allocations are just extremely difficult to find. Uh, you've got a, a, a big time resellers market of bourbon out there, it seems like, uh, versus a, a guy like me who just enjoys in, uh, having it and tasting it. Um, where do you think the industry's headed? Where, do you, do you kind of have any uh, a crystal ball there that, that tells you? I, I wish I did. I think that's that's really the big question. Uh, just because you know everybody's putting so much money into the into the industry, and because there aren't any signs of of slowed growth at this point, you know, I think 
been almost $2 billion invested in the industry in just like the last five years here in Kentucky. And I think the next five years, it's projected to be over $3 billion more. Um, so, you know, with all this investment, you know, that's kind of, you know, the, I don't know if trillion would be too big. You know, it's multi-billion dollar question right there. You know, is is it going to keep accelerating? Is it going to slow down? And, you know, at some point, you know, I always say, well, you can extrapolate this out. We're going to run out of people at this rate at some point. Um, you know, if nothing else, we'll run, you know, run out of people to get, to be drinking bourbon. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I think everyone's being more optimistic than they have been in the past. You know, that's a lot of why you see allocations. You know, I think everyone knew that bourbon was booming. Everyone was um, reacting to it. But even so, everyone still thought, you know, this is just too crazy. This has got to slow down at some point. But we haven't seen any of that. It's just been growing on all fronts, you know, domestic sales, uh, export sales, um, tourism, so yeah, everybody's keeping an eye on it, but it, it just seems like more and more people keep coming into the category. Um, and we see a, most of our growth is in like the premium to super premium segment. It's people wanting, um, you know, more of the, the high quality, more unique offerings. And, you know, I think that's the big difference, you know, from just if you look at the, the shelves, you know, today versus 10, 15 years ago, you know, the variety the quality, the amount of single barrels, and you know, it's just it's just phenomenal. So I think we're going to see more of that, you know, more variety, more innovation, um, more premium offerings. So, well, yeah. I have to say I do enjoy the fact that uh, Four Roses was uh, has always been so well known in Europe. Uh, anytime I've traveled uh, overseas. Uh, I've been able to enjoy at least have a four roses where I've been um, in Europe uh, because, you know, as a, as a bourbon drinker, um, you know, everybody wants to have wine when they're, when they're in Europe, but uh, not me. I, I want to enjoy a good <laughs> bourbon that reminds me of home. So, um, you know, one of the other things that I, I think would be good, uh, there's a lot of folks, like I've said prior, that are interested in bourbon and have questions about it. Is there a documentary or anything out there that you would recommend that they can you know, go and try to find or try to watch. Um, Neat is a really good documentary. I've seen that one. That is a great documentary. You're in that. Yeah, yeah I'm in it. I actually sort of got into that one last minute. I, I met the producer at a bourbon event and he's like, hey, I'm making a movie. He's <laughs> like, here's the link to the trailer. And I went home that night and watched the trailer. And he was basically, it was on the editing floor. And um it, it just blew me away. So the very next day, I, I can't remember if I called him or emailed him. And I was like, look, this documentary looks incredible. If you need any extra footage whatsoever, anything at all, we would love to be included. And a few weeks after that, he called back and he's like, you know, we need a little bit more production footage. I was like, anytime, come on out. So <laughs> fortunately, we, we, yeah, we were included. It's a great documentary, but there are a lot of good documentaries out there, but that one, yeah. They had Steve Zahn. Uh, uh, he's the sort of the host of the of the documentary. Yeah, yeah, he's hilarious. Have you gotten to meet him? I, I would assume you might have uh, at events. Yeah, I, I I didn't meet him during the making of that, but he came out for a tour. I don't know, eight nine years ago maybe, and uh, yeah, he was 
all about the bourbon. You know, he's he's a local guy. I didn't know that before then, but uh, yeah, he's not uh, for originally from Kentucky. He moved to Kentucky and uh, still lives in Kentucky. For those who don't know, Steve Zahn is an actor. Uh, he's been in uh, several films. My favorite is That Thing You Do with Tom Hanks and and a few others. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's a big bourbon aficionado, so I think it's cool that they got him to do the uh, to sort of host that documentary. Yeah, he's a great guy. He did a great job with it too. And did you do that? documentary before or after you were named distiller of the year in 2020 uh that was before <laughs> okay gotcha yeah. so that just it was just things just started rolling the ball started rolling you uh you did the documentary you became master distiller of the year uh did you get a crown or anything for that <laughs> uh i got a nice uh barrel head oh that's cool that's <laughs> awesome it's better than a crown <laughs> The year the world shut down, you're the distiller of the year. Yeah, I slipped in just in time. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, look, uh, as we wrap this up, um, and, and for folks who are listening to this, it's September the 15th for you. Uh, we're pre-recording it, obviously, uh, scheduling and everything. But uh, something starts tomorrow. Uh, you want to talk about that real quick? Uh, the uh, Bourbon Festival. Absolutely. That is there in Bardstown. Um Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, down at the lawn. I would say go to the the website for all the details. I will be there, but frankly, I I don't know exactly when I'm going to be there, and I don't know all the events. But it's it's a great event. Um, they've kind of changed the format up in the last couple of years, so it's more bourbon centric now. Um, you can go in, you can sample bourbons from you know more distilleries, and you can probably even sample. I mean, you know, there's so much participation. Um, in the Would bourbon you say it's something that should be on the bucket list for folks who really love bourbon. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. All the stories show up. Um, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic festival. Okay. Well, it, it mark it down the Kentucky bourbon festival. It's in Bardstown every year. And uh, it's, it's a place where you can go and, and do and learn of all things uh, bourbon. Um, you know, one of the things that we do uh, as a company at next move group, we have uh, uh, an event in new Orleans every year around Mardi Gras. Uh, where we bring our clients in, uh, site selection consultants uh, that are friends of ours that, that do site selection like we do uh, for companies. And um, we, we have an event every year down in New Orleans. We've been talking about doing, uh, that's actually every other year we do it. And we've been talking about in our off years doing a, an event somewhere else. We've thought about a few places, but uh, one of the things that I mentioned uh, to our executive team was that I thought it would be cool if we brought in uh, a master distiller. So Maybe sometime in the future, uh, clients of Next Move Group, folks uh, who are out there, if, if Brent can find time in his schedule, I would love to have you uh, maybe participate in one of our events. I think that'd be great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's, Let me know. There's, there's nothing like doing a bourbon tasting with a with a distiller, <laughs> master distiller. I just, uh, learn, you get to learn and uh, uh, you better than anyone can tell someone how to taste bourbon. <laughs> I'd be I, uh, happy to. Yeah, I, I I love walking people through tastings. Yeah, and for that's part of my job now. Which you know, twenty years ago was not. You know, Master Stiller was pretty much strictly on the job. And you know, now it's when people really want to learn. They're like, you know, who better to learn from than the Master Stiller? So I, I get to do a lot of. Um, I have a lot of interaction with with. Uh, guests and VIPs and, and travel and that sort of thing. And I, I love that. I love walking people through tastings, teaching them about the history, the uniqueness. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Well, it's always a joy every time I get to see you. I appreciate you so much being on the podcast. I hope the folks out there have learned quite a bit about bourbon today uh, that, and taken some notes if it's something that you're targeting for your community uh, to try to bring that type of industry in. Uh, obviously, uh, you, know, you can reach out to me, Chuck, at nextmovegroup.com. Uh, we can give you some notes on uh, what it takes to do that. And uh, Brent Elliott, Master Distiller of Four Roses, thank you so much for being a guest on the We Are Jobs podcast. Thank you, Chuck.